You're listening to my viewfinder. I release a new episode every week on Friday. Hit that subscribe button and don't miss out on any of these awesome conversations. How about this? What's your favorite weather and why? <laughs> uh, I really like like cold, crisp autumn days and like kind of like really gloomy, rainy days because usually there's not really people out. Um, <laughs> I like to just kind of be alone while I'm walking around outside. Um, I also, even though I live in Calgary, I don't like anything over like 25 is too hot for me. And then like anything below zero or like below negative 10, I'm like, it's too cold. So it's like, I could just perpetually live in like year long in a fall crisp, okay day. That would be ideal. <laughs> You know, I, it just reminds me of this one conversation we should probably have, which is uh, where a photographer exists on the sideline or in, but such a photographer's response to like being alone. <laughs> <laughs> My Viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode was brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Is there a line a photographer has to draw when addressing their own work? How do we approach our practice with good conscience? The second part of my chat with Chelsea provided me with a foothold, a starting point, portraiture to empower subjects, moral framework to address the pressures women and people of color face because of photography and mass media. Is it portrait photography's job to hide or to highlight the individual parts of us that make us unique and therefore beautiful? Chelsea believes we have to hold to the core concept that what you see is what you get. Here's the conclusion of this talk with Chelsea Yang-Smith, photographer and advocate for realism and ethical representation through the lens. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm learning very quickly that I am not like you. I uh, am disorganized and uh, I think I'm an idealist. Although, you know, like for example, with the podcasting, yeah, Streamlining is great. My post-production time is starting to shrink. Uh, so I don't feel like uh, I'm under a bus all the time. But um, but the other half of what you're talking about, you know, the 70% of managing marketing and kind of uh, business. Uh, yeah, we'll see if I can learn that. I have no idea what that is yet now. Uh, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I'm still like my Instagram is like not what like after all the exposure talks and like you need to like do social media and like all this stuff I was like oh my god like I hate spending time writing captions for posts on Instagram and I like for a hot minute was like really trying to um get that moving on my account like during quarantine and then I was just like I just really hate doing this <laughs> like it's not for me um I could get more work through that or interesting work or whatever but um sometimes it's just like networking like I've done like that's the hard thing for 
or that's going to be a hard thing for me to leave Calgary eventually is like, I've really built up a network of contacts here. So like a lot of the work I get is like from those relationships that I've, I've fostered over time. Um, and like, that's just one way of working. Some people like those Instagram influencers that, you know, have like 15 million followers and like people love their photography. They get work that way too. Like it's, it really depends which kind of like where you want to put your eggs in your basket, you know, and it, and your brand as well. Like that's a weird thing to say, but like um, people like think about that when they hire you, it's like, what are you known for? Like I'm known for being really reliable, really easy to work with. I'm always really polite. I don't, you know, I'm not shitty on set. You um, scowl a lot though, apparently. I, I scowl a lot, but like <laughs> I'm actually a really nice person. Like I just have like really bad resting bitch face. So like people think like, oh, she's really scary. But then like they talk to me and they're like, oh, like she's actually not scary. <laughs> um, probably what makes you a f successful commercial photographer. People aren't, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, leave me alone. I'm busy. Uh, you know, I, not to be overly critical, because I loved uh, the speakers at Exposure Studio, but there is some mixed messaging, which I kind of want to bring up too, because when you brought up the history of photography and its original intent, I think social media is a fascinating thing. Um, I mean, again, we don't know each other very well. I haven't posted any content on my quote-unquote photography uh, Instagram for nine months. I don't know. I mean, I posted that we got into studio, but I haven't posted any work in a long time. But what you brought up about uh, building a social network I think is actually the underpinning of how social media can be effective. So my wife has a, you know, entrepreneurial business with the KonMari um, stuff and uh, she's doing great. But I remember in a year two, she actually did a analysis because like you, she's a much more organized and business practical minded person. And what she found was um, despite her growing social media presence, the actual, what is it, return on investment or how many like people actually engage is total bullshit. It's like no people are love to be nominally involved but when it comes down to actually engaging it's it's a completely different story and she like you um has found that it's actually the growing social network in reality that will will bring out something so when i again like you was listening to some of the uh air quote advice about how to manage your social media presence i was also torn i was thinking there's some nominally good advice like about representing yourself blah blah blah, blah. but there's also this thing in the back of my mind where yeah i don't want to do it i don't like doing it um and i'm not even sure that it works the way even successful people believe like these people that have 50 million followers is it because they have followers is because to get to 50 million followers you gotta you gotta be holding a lot of people's hands i mean it that is not i mean my wife's still under 10,000 followers and uh i'm mean, she works she used to work very hard and she knows a lot of i think she's built more by meeting um prominent calgarian social forces than it is about anything to do with projecting an image of herself uh, online. I mean, who knows? Uh, who am I to say? But I mean, to that point, you know, you brought up sort of the intent of photography initially to be able to sort of, let's say, capture reality, uh, to replace fallible memory. Um, I get into argument about this all the time because photography purists don't like to hear both that that uh, existed, although most people will have to acknowledge that's a history. But my twist is that it doesn't do that anymore. And it's now culture and uh, bias forming. Um, even in the commercial work that you do, it's fascinating to think about, yeah, like taking a picture of some pants and whether the are those the pants that I'll receive in the mail? Uh, oh, no, hundred percent. Right. Um, like, there's a lot of morality behind it and ethics behind photography. Like, I, um, I definitely think the capitalist machine has like really 
um, taken over photography. Like it's really subverted its role of like documenting reality to selling stuff. But like, it, I mean, it depends which sector you work with. You know, you could argue that like documentary or like editorial photography, it's about selling the story um, or product stuff. It's about selling the product. Fashion is like selling the reality, I guess, you know, like, oh, I'll live this kind of grand lifestyle if I buy this kind of clothing or, you know, like X, Y, Z. That's something I really was conscious of, um, like when I was in school and starting out, because I, as like a woman working in the industry, I was really familiar with the kind of images that women were subjected to in, in print, um, even more so now on like on the web. And I not that I made like a huge vow about it or anything, but I, I know how to liquefy bodies and like make someone look skinnier than they do on in Photoshop. Do I do it? No, because like that goes really against like my ethics of like, I truly want to present what you see is what you get. And that's kind of the, what I focused on when I was in school. Like I did a lot of portraits and that's like something I have against, I don't want to say the fashion industry, but like I had classmates who really did a lot of like fashion and beauty photography. And I was like, it's not difficult to photograph someone who's already pretty. You know, I don't want to see more like skinny white girls with perfect hair wearing whatever. And I get that's like, that's the concept they're trying to build is like, that's just the stand-in model, you know, the standard, and then like all the other stuff that they do to style it is the interesting part. Um, but for me, I really liked just photographing like people. And so like the portraits I did were of like friends that I went to school with. And I, I really loved, like, I always kind of joke, I do like candid, like staged candid portraiture. I'm very much, I think, I don't know, maybe it's weird, but like, I think a photo should be like, what you see is what you get. Like, it should be very true. And that's just kind of my own personal ethics. And I guess like ideology, and I take that into portraiture, I take that into like, the, I mean, there is things like that I will composite, but I don't really do like extensive compositing. Um, for me, like, even product stuff, like I try really hard to like literally what you see is like how it almost looked like on camera. And I use Photoshop to kind of clean everything up. Like I think a lot of people think that, or at least I did when I was done school that Photoshop is like what you use to edit everything. But I've kind of switched over to Lightroom because like event stuff, I don't need to be compositing or doing crazy things. And I always kind of think of like Lightroom is like, you know, the big broad like brush stroke of editing photos. And then like, if you really want to get detailed with it, you go into Photoshop and do like the tiny little brush, like fixing it up. And so like even when I was in school, like I did a lot of portraits and things like that. Um, I purposely didn't clean up, um, I don't say like not clean up photos, but like even when I get portraits from clients now, they're like, oh, like, I'm sorry, my face like broke out or like boo boo boo. Um, you know, I'm, that's just it. And I'm always, I always tell people, I'm like, my rule of thumb is like, I will take anything out that will disappear in a couple of weeks. So if your face breaks out, you get a bad pimple or something, I'll take that out because that's not going to be there forever. But if you have like a defining scar or like a defining mole like on your face, I'm not going to take that out because that's who you are as a person. I'm not going to change that. And that's for me, like the line that I kind of draw is like in terms of what I will liquefy, what I'll spot remove. It's like things like, you know, like obviously people sit away and like, you know, it makes something look kind of lumpy, you know. I will go in and liquefy and clean that up, but I'm not going to turn them from like a size eight to like a size four. Like I'm not going to clean that kind of stuff up. And I think that's really important, like even in our conversations of like representation as well, like 
for like women, it's really hard to find representations of like their kind of body because the industry idealizes like such a ridiculous standard that like maybe only 2% of the population actually holds. And that was kind of my intent with like portraits and the things that I kind of do is like, I think that just having that out there and like having people feel good about themselves in photos. Like it's funny in some respect, like I hate having my photo taken and it's part of it is because I know, like I'm a photographer, I know how to make people look good. But like when I'm on the other side of the camera, I don't know like how I'm supposed to like hold my neck. Like I don't know what it looks like on camera and no one ever directs me. And I'm just like, great. I have like a double chin now. And I know that could have been avoided if you just like directed me. So like, I'm always like when people sit with me for portraits, I'm very, you know, I try to like, I'm very calm. I like talk them through about like what it is I'm doing. And I, you know, I like tell them sometimes I'm like, this is going to sound weird, but like, I need you to like kind of bring your chin forward, kind of like you're like a peacock and like hold your neck and that'll get rid of neck rolls or like other weird things. And I think that really helps relax the subjects too, because they know that like, I'm looking for their best interests, like, and that I'm not going to like photograph them or turn, like make it look like someone who they aren't. Um, and everyone's always their worst critics too. Like they, you know, especially women, like they're always like, oh, I hate this. Oh, I don't look good in this. And it's like, I think it's so like, I, I, I truly love like the candid smiles I get on camera. And like, as I had mentioned, kind of like, there are two types of photographers. There's photographers who take like 800 photos and they're like the very quintessential like Zoolander where it's like, yeah, like now this, now that. And it's like the person who's sitting is just like looking all over the place doing 15 million things. And then there's like photographers who te- treat their subjects as sculptures. So it's very much like, okay, sit like back straight, like look in this direction, don't move. And I'm very much, that's what I prefer because I like to just get people where they are. But then after that, I take a couple and I start to like try and get them to relax. So I always keep like a couple of like really bad jokes like in the back pocket, just like something stupid that I know is going to get like a little smirk or like, like their true laugh or like smile. And that's when like, those are my favorite images. And like, of course we have like the professional ones that people like but I'm like those ones are like my favorite because they truly capture who the person is and there's no photoshop there's nothing and that's kind of I guess like my ethics when it comes to what is real and what isn't is like I know that there's a lot of there's a lot you can do um and like one could even argue the way you light a subject or light something could change you know how it looks like in person and that's like yeah you know like there's there's a bunch of different lines I think for me photoshop is where I draw that line you know I don't put something in there that wasn't in before I mean unless the client asks for it and it's like I don't know like I'm photographing a beer can they're like can you put a flower in the background or something like that I don't know like something that isn't very like ethically like ambiguous whereas like if it was a different story where I don't know they wanted I don't know Godzilla in the background of this like portrait thing like I don't know I think there's there's people who really enjoy the compositing enjoy like creating these like unreal realities using photo manipulation um and it it's really up to the photographer like where they fall on the spectrum and that's not even covering the other kind of ethics involved with photography in terms of like what is it that you'll photograph like I personally don't really do documentary photography and the only kind of documentary photography I I guess I would say is like very autobiographical because I feel comfortable capturing what is my own personal experience 
I find it really difficult when um, photographers, especially when they're not people of color, go into marginalized communities and photograph the day-to-day lives, you know, a lot of the National Geographic kind of stuff. And I get it. Like, you know, that kind of goes into the history of photography wanting to, like, capture these moments, like, as historical value. But as, like, Andrew and I think um, Mark had mentioned is, like, you know, these folks are shooting with a colonialist lens, you know, like how can you be sure that you're actually documenting an accurate representation of this community? Like at what point is it, you know, like you're just, you're, uh, it's like you're the safari like guy being like, look at this, like, you know, crocodile Dundee like creature that I'm like documenting, you know, like it's, it's just so like, you can't really, the camera is such a separation between the subject and the person. And I think it's really important that when you're going into these kinds of communities that like, it's not, you're, you're maintaining that connection. You're not just numbing yourself to what you're actually seeing, you know, like even in the cases of like these Black Lives Matter riots, you know, people see these photos, but it's like, I, I think it's so interesting. Like the, the photographers who go into these spaces, what they're photographing, because an image can change, you know, the narrative so easily, you know, it, one person could perceive it as, you know, the cops are beating up uh, innocent pedestrians, or other people could perceive it as, you know, like, riot, um, you know, gangs, like, attacking, you know, the, the state. Um, and I think it's so, it, it's so complex. There's so many like conversations I think the photographer needs to have not only with themselves but with these communities um with like it's it's a very complex space to work in and it's I'm not saying it's not for me it's just like I think it's just you know I I'm I'm comfortable shooting what I know what I've you know, with even with my second site series documenting like mixed race individuals in their homes, you know, like that has some ethical connotations where it's like, am I displaying them as like specimens, you know, like also challenging people to kind of figure out what their race is. And it's like the series intention is really to kind of challenge the question, like, what are you? And like purposely not providing any last names or information about the person aside from the collections and things of their environment, their home, because, you know, it's such a demeaning question to ask someone what are you like the need to racially like categorize someone in order to figure out what your interaction is like is such a frustrating like issue and a lot of people don't see any problems asking those questions towards racially ambiguous individuals it's not even just mixed race people it's you know anyone who doesn't fit the norm of what you perceive as like this is what a black person looks like this is what an asian person looks like so like even then I like question that and like to my defense I guess on that is like as a person who's lived that experience you know this is I'm doing the work to empower these individuals to figure out my own like place through this stuff like it's you know I think if you're going to do that kind of stuff you need to be able to defend it and have a fucking good reason for it I think it's funny I just in a um you know as you're speaking but I, I realized too um you know, I was just telling my wife this morning, I used to kind of bother, uh, I, I used to consider myself agnostic atheist, but I used to tease atheist friends that you have to uh, believe in something to hate it. So it's like, if you're going to declare yourself an atheist, then you have to have a definition of some God t- to be counter of it and just to be a dick. But um, it's interesting, like casting that light on how we, I, I certainly um, have a lump term for uh, white people. And, uh, I mean, 
there's this colonial aspect where they will lump themselves together in spite of probably not wanting to uh, acknowledge. Like, for example, if you're, you know, Polish, you're going to want to have a schism between that and, let's say, an East German <laughs> or Russian. Um, but on a broader sort of uh, particularly in North America more than anything, um, there's a lumping. In Europe, the state and political, it's like in Asia, you know, everybody thinks Asian people all look the same and Asian people are like, no, we, we fucking don't look like anything. We hate each other, actually. Even within countries, we see like, you know, in, in Korea, there'll be people from Seoul who will disrespect people from Busan and like, you know, uh, never mind Southeast Asian countries and how they're treated by, let's say, the Chinese government itself and how Chinese people hate each other because there's a hundred different cultures that are actually, with, you know, it's... It just blows up into a mess. Um, it's fascinating too, like this idea of a colonial lens. I mean, I I don't I don't think it's any mistake that historically documentary photographers are generally privileged Caucasian men, <laughs> and whatever their intent was of uh, playing the martyr or uh, being there for the right reasons, photography is a weird thing where it is capturing pr- presumably reality in some moment through some perspective but it it often lacks literal context and uh, i was talking to twinkle and she brought up this interesting thing which i think is a great summation of this point is that when you think of india it's either right like slums and people starving or like this bollywood thing where everybody's rich and they're all wearing fucking you know with gold gilded garb and there's nothing in the middle right there's no you know, the reality, there's urban centers and there's agriculture and there's all these different cultures that work together. Nobody cares, right? And, um, you know, I mean, like you brought up, it's not like America's immune to that. Um, I was also thinking when you're talking about fashion um, and female archetypes, you know, is it the fashion industry or is it uh, mass production that's to blame? Do we, do we create archetypes for female body because some unknown alum, Illuminati heterosexual male decided that these are the only women that are attractive or is it because of industrialization that if I have a machine and it prints one form now I got to find a person that fits that form otherwise we can't mass produce this product who knows I mean I can't answer that but yeah oh, such it's a weird a combination world. of both like the yeah. thing with men is like men um, and this is not I'm not trying to overgeneralize there are many different types body types for men but um, generally because the biological composition of like men's bodies are very much similar for the most part, you know, that standardization of sizes completely applicable. But for women, there's just so much variables <laughs> that it's very, very difficult to actually have one shape. Yeah. Yeah. One shape. And so part of it is like, you know, like capitalism. It's like, we just want to make the most money. So we're just going to do these one size fit all. And I was actually listening to this other podcast, um, it's why won't you date me by Nicole Byer? Um, she's also the host for Nailed It, but she's like, oh yeah, like she's her podcasts are so good. And she was talking Brooklyn about, yeah, yeah. Um, she was talking about body issues, and she's like, the reason celebrities always look so good, even in a t-shirt and jeans, is because everything they own is tailored. So people see these celebrities, they see these like you know the models that are photographed where the clothes fit their body, and they assume because their bodies don't fit that standardization that they therefore are fat or they are unattractive or there's body shame. And it's like, well, actually it's because the clothes don't fit you. It's not anything wrong with you. It's like, you just need to get your clothes tailored so they look better, but like no one can afford that. So it's, um, it's definitely, I, I'd say like a, 
it's a combination too because when you think of like certain styles like high heels like literally like people go off about like oh like you know men used to wear high heels back in the days of like theater and everything and now women like wear it and it's supposed to elongate their legs and like I have a super um, issue with uh, restaurants like Earl's or like the keg where they make it mandatory for women to wear heels while they are on shift and like I worked in a restaurant I worked bartending you're standing for eight to nine hours a day in these fucking like steel gripped like things crushing your feet and like men don't have to wear heels like I think that's such a fucking gendered sexist policy and it's like there's a lot of those kinds of um unspoken rules i think that exist in fashion that exist in body image you know even when like the whole body positivity movement that's like resurfacing you know that was because black women pioneered that movement um it's you know there's so many facets of it and like having a lived experience as a woman having grown up on that um i don't I don't really want to contribute any more, any kind of imagery that will reinforce that idealization because um, it breaks my heart thinking that like every young girl that is born is at some point going to learn to hate their body, whether it's through TV, whether it's from their own mother, whether it's from their peers, like women are trained, indoctrinated at a young age to hate how they look. Um, So, you know, in terms of ethics and things like that, I never want to contribute to to that perpetuation of those of those systemic issues. Uh, There's a there's a there's a trope that will get paid. And then there's something about my idealism, what photography is supposed to do. And yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I think it's just finding that line, you know, of like keeping what's real, but like making it look just a little bit nicer. and that's, yeah, kind of like, it's like, I think it's always just really having that conversation with like who you're photographing um, and like building that connection, which is really hard. Like I, I'm still, I've witnessed other photographers do portraits and how they work and it's finding whatever kind of style works for you. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and connect with me on social media. My account on Twitter is at MVF Podcast. And if you're on Instagram, you can find me at My Viewfinder Podcast. This episode of My Viewfinder is brought to you by The Shared Mic. The hectic pace of modern life makes it difficult to take the time to truly connect with other people. The Shared Mic Conversation for the Ages is a podcast by age-friendly Edmonton that's creating human connections one episode at a time. In this interview-style podcast, people from different generations and backgrounds meet to discuss topics that matter to them. It's been a successful social experiment because so far, everyone has been able to find something in common. Season 2 is out now and offers a fantastic selection of topics, including cultivating friendships, building careers, exploring virtual theater, volunteerism, and more. The Shared Mic is available on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and is brought to you by the Edmonton Seniors Coordinating Council and the City of Edmonton.